are making disciples who are going out of our way to bless others and to build others up and reaching for others. Amen? Amen. The Lord can work on a Wednesday night. I, uh, I, I'm reminded, and I was thinking earlier, even just this morning, uh, football season is, is almost upon us, and I've never played football. Uh, I've played, you know, scrimmage football. I've never played football, you know, with helmets and pads, uh, and I don't really follow it all that closely, but I know enough about football, Brother Anderson, to know that when teams are preparing uh, for the next week's game, that a lot of times they'll watch film on their opponent, and they'll do what's called a little bit of opposition research, and they'll see what kind of plays they run, and they'll just try to identify some of the key players and some of the moves they might make and the strategies they use. And I think that that's some of that would be wise to carry over into our spiritual life. I believe that sometimes it's wise to take a look at the one who is our adversary and to just reacquaint ourselves with who he is and the, some of the tactics that he uses and not to get fixated on him. I think that's unhealthy. But to acquaint ourselves with some of the things that he is prone to do. And uh, so I want to take a little bit of time, at least for tonight, and just talk about the identity of our adversary. The identity of our adversary. Let me ask a question just to see if this is just a trivia question. Uh, can any, does anyone know when the first time, so the, 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 the word for, uh, the word for adversary is, uh, in the original, in, in the Old Testament language, is Satan. They would say it's Satan, Satan. Um, and that's how they, that's literally just means, it's not a proper name, it's, it just means adversary. Does anyone know when the first time that that particular word is used in the Bible? Anybody want to take a guess? There's, this isn't a setup. I'll give you a hint. It's not Genesis. It's not Genesis. The word Satan does not appear in Genesis. It does not appear in Exodus. It does not appear in Leviticus. It does not appear in Deuteronomy. It first appears in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, chapter 22, in the story of Balaam, first uses this word, Satan. I'll read it to you. Numbers, chapter 22, verse 22 says, Then God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. So it's interesting that the first time that word adversary, the first time that word Satan is used in the Bible, it isn't talking about the devil. It's talking about the angel of the Lord that stood in the middle of the road when the prophet was going down the road. So I don't bring that up to confuse or to disorient, but I bring that up to say that Satan is not his proper name. Like my first name is Dustin. His, his name, sometimes scripture will use the capital S, Satan, and that's a perfectly good designation because he is the chief accuser. He is the chief adversary, and that's his function. And so I'm, I say that to draw attention because the word 
means adversary. So many times when you hear me speak, whether I'm speaking in a one-on-one conversation or if I'm in a setting like this, many times I will default to the word adversary. I will default to talking about the enemy as the capital A adversary because that's what he is. That's the best, I think, clearest designation of what his role is in our life. He opposes God and he opposes us and he stands in the way. He withstands God and he withstands the saints of God as an adversary would. And so many times I don't want to try to do the dig- do him the dignity of trying to figure out or call him by his proper name. I'm content to just leave him with one of his many titles and he has a lot of them. He has many titles in scripture. One of them is Satan. In fact, the first time in the Bible when the word Satan is used to describe the one that we think of as the devil is in the book of Job, and we'll get there in a minute. But even in the book of Job, he's not so much called Satan as he's called the Satan, the adversary. And it doesn't come through in our English translations because most of the time it just says Satan. But if you look at the original, the definite article, the word the is there. It's Satan, the Satan, the adversary. And so he's got a lot of different titles. And let me share a few of them with you. Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is in the wilderness, identifies this individual, this one we are talking about, the one who opposes the devil, Satan. It, It identifies him as the tempter. He is a tempter. Other, where, other places in scripture calls him Beelzebub or enemy or evil one or Belial. Adversary is one that we've already mentioned. Deceiver. The book of Revelation calls him the great dragon. John chapter 8 identifies him as the father of lies. John chapter 8 also says that he was a murderer from the beginning. 1 John chapter 3 simply calls him a sinner. Revelation calls him Apollyon, which means destroyer. Let's talk about a few things that we know for certain about the adversary. And I'm just going to try to stick with the adversary, but I'll go with Satan. I'll go with the devil. I'll go with all kinds of things because he's got a lot of different titles. In a lot of different ways that we identify him. But let's look at a couple things. And, and here's my commitment tonight to you. There's a lot of things that can be said anecdotally about this adversary. That is to say, there's a lot of people that have personal experiences with spiritual things. And depending on the person, I might believe and take wisdom from some of the things that they tell me. But for the sake of what we're doing tonight... I want to commit to you that we're going to be in Scripture. They're not going to be anecdotes. They're not going to be personal examples. They're going to be scriptural references that we're going to look at. And we're going to get a handle on exactly who is this adversary that we face and what kind of adversary is he. Remember, we're doing kind of like what the football teams do right now. We're just taking a step back. We're in the room together, and we're looking at it, and we're saying, okay, this is some of this. That's kind of what we're doing right now. We're not getting fixated. We're not doing anything unhealthy. We're simply looking at what is the scriptural testimony regarding this one 
that appears over and over again, and that every single person in this room is acquainted with one of his agents or some force associated with him. We've all felt it. We all feel it. He opposes each one of us. He is the adversary towards every single one of us. The first thing that we need to know when we're just talking about his identity is that he exists. He exists. He's real. One of the greatest lies that Satan would have you believe is that he does not exist. He's introduced to us in the earliest chapters of Scripture. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That was the adversary speaking. The serpent's question in the garden to Eve appears innocuous. It appears harmless. It appears as though it's just a simple question. It's just something to think about. But it was more than just a question. It was what was going to prompt Eve and then Adam to become disobedient to God. And Satan was not there to force them to do anything. While he does exist, he cannot force you to do anything. But he was there in the garden and he exists still in our lives as a way of sometimes prompting us to do things that might cause us to become disobedient to God. The serpent in Genesis targeted both the command and the character of God. The question that Eve and Adam had to wrestle with when they were presented with this question from the adversary was not some of the things that we sometimes think. The question was, is God trustworthy? That's what the enemy, the enemy wasn't there to talk about forbidden fruit. The enemy wasn't there to talk about pomegranates and apples and oranges and, and all those different things. The enemy wasn't there to talk about how close they could get to the tree without sinning. And, and, and the enemy wasn't there to, to talk about any multitude of things. The enemy was there to ask a simple question and to sow a simple thought into their life. Is God trustworthy? Is what God said trustworthy? And is the character of this God that I know, is it trustworthy? Can he be trusted? Can he be relied upon? Is he telling me the truth? Or is he keeping something back from me that I deserve to have? That's the enemy. That's the way he was working in the garden. That's where we're introduced to the adversary. Two of the major prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah and Ezekiel, both contain these lengthier passages that I'm not going to read in our hearing tonight. But Isaiah chapter 14, if you're a note taker, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28 are both chapters that contain, I can't explain it any better than just to say that they are songs. They're almost like taunts. And it's God speaking to his prophet about a mortal king who was alive back then, uh, and it's different in both passages. But it's loaded with sarcasm, it's, it's, it's sarcastic, it's, 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 uh, it's exaggerated, and it's talking about these kings who were obviously just 
regular old human beings like you and me, but they thought that they were more. And they wanted to be more. And they presented themselves as more. And they were even taking steps to convince others that they were more than just simple mortals. They were about earthly kings who were mortals, but they thought they were more. And there's a dual meaning there. We learn something about Satan in this passage. A lot of times in prophecy, we'll just do Bible study for a second. A lot of times in prophecy in the Old Testament, uh, there's dual meanings. There'll be dual meanings. So the prophecy in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel, what was it? Someone who took a note. 28. They're about two things. They're about an earthly king, a particular earthly king who thinks he's all that in a bag of chips, and he's starting to really get built up with pride. And it's also a picture of Satan. It's both at the same time. You see, this happens in Scripture and the prophets a lot of times. You'll see in Scripture, um, I think it's Micah chapter 6 maybe. There's prophecies about Jesus, the one who, the Messiah who would come in the New Testament, who would be Jesus Christ. There's prophecies in the Old Testament, and the prophecies are about something happening in that contemporary time period when the prophet was alive, and it's also about the Messiah who would come in the first century, and his name would be Jesus. So there's a double thing going on. And that's the way it is in these passages. There's two things going on. It's talking about this wicked king, and it's also talking about Satan. And, and that's where and it's in those passages that we, we get another designation for him that the English versions bring through as Lucifer. Lucifer. And so that's why sometimes we call him Lucifer. And it's, it's talking about earthly kings, and it's talking about Satan, and that's perfectly valid. But what we see in these passages with these earthly kings is that they are lifting themselves up to the degree that God has to bring judgment down on them. And that's what Satan did. Satan lifted himself up, and he wanted, he wanted to be God. I'm talking about our adversary. We're just walk, watching a little tape right now. Let's rewind the clock. Let's see what's the character of this adversary. What's, what, mo what drives him? I can tell you what drives him. He wants to be God. He wants to be God. The sin, the word we use for that kind of sin is iniquity. It's iniquity. It's when, it's when he wants to exercise God's power, which the angels do. He wants to exercise the authority and the power of God. But he wants to own the power as well. He wants to exercise the authority and the power and reflect the identity of God. But he wants to do it on his terms and not God's terms. Let me pause for a second and just hit a rabbit trail. It's why holiness is still important. Because holiness is the opposite of iniquity. Holiness is about whenever I say, I want my identity to reflect his identity... But I'm willing to do it on his terms. I'm still submitted to him. I want to be able to exercise his power and authority as a son of God. But I'm still going to do it on his terms because I don't have to own that power and authority. I know it comes from him. I'm not trying to be the God of my own life. 
And that's where holiness originates from. When, when we have that attitude toward our relationship with God, and we're not trying to use God as the means to an end, which is what Satan was doing. When we are using, when, when, when we are in a relationship with God, whenever he is the one that is, has all the power, and he's the one that we're submitted to still, and he's the one we're reflecting his identity, and we're willing to do it on his terms. Let me say it another way. We're willing to do it God's way. That's holiness. That's why in the scripture when it says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. That's the one thing that Satan could not do. He could not bring himself to be like God without being God. He wanted to be God. And so God recognized that level of pride. He recognized that level of iniquity in Satan. And he cast Satan from his position of power and influence and glory. That's why it's still important to be holy. Holiness is the thing that, let me just get into it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is the chapter that talks about hair. Right? But it's not a chapter about hair. It talks about hair. Good valid teaching about hair still holds up today, but it's not a chapter about hair. It's a chapter about authority. It's a chapter about authority. And that's why it says in that chapter, and I'm paraphrasing, that the angels look on. You know that verse I'm talking about? The angels look on this particular issue with the hair and other issues too, but for the sake of that passage, the hair. The angels look on because they're going to see it and know whether or not you're like God or Satan. Because Satan had a problem with authority. Right? The dots connecting a little bit. I'm trying to paint a picture. He exists. He exists and he's wicked and he has rebelled against God and he wants to be God. But he will never be God. And so because of that, he is an adversary. He is sometimes just called the Satan, and then other times he is called capital S Satan. He is the chief adversary. He is the chief one who withstands God, who stands in the way of God. He is an active agent. He exists. He has powers of intelligence. He has pow uh, powers of being intentional, and he has powers of communicating. 1 Peter chapter 5 this one verse, verse 8, tells us a lot of what we need to know about the identity of the one who is our adversary. It says, be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He prowls around like a lion. He's real and he's looking for those who he may devour. He works among individuals. He works among families. He works among what the Bible calls the nations. And he rallies support as an adversary against God and against God's kingdom. He is an organized adversary. He has established principalities and powers and strongholds. He knows how to defend 
his territory. He knows how to disarm those whom he would conquer. He knows how to distract the saints who should know better. Have you ever read about, I read a book last year about uh, some of the battles and, and some of the people. It was about George Custer, but it was, it was about uh, just what happened out on the Great Plains during the 1800s between the Native Americans and the U.S. Army and, and just some of the stuff that happened. Have you ever read anything or maybe seen a documentary or something, and it talks about some of the interactions and the skirmishes? And the Native Americans had this, they had this genius tactic that they used, this genius tactic. They'd be fighting. They'd, be, they'd a lot of times be outnumbered, almost always outgunned. And they would be, but they were excellent cavalry. And they would ride around and like almost swarm. And then at a certain point during the battle when it seemed like the tipping point was happening, Brother Walker, they would take off and they would retreat. But it wasn't a real retreat. It was a fake retreat. It was staged. And they would get, they would retreat a certain direction, and they would, and then all of a sudden, the armory, the army cavalry would, would take off chasing them. And they'd go into some canyon or something, and then the Native Americans would turn around and get them. And now all of a sudden, they had changed the battlefield. They had changed the factors. They had bottlenecked them up. They had gotten the high ground. They had done something. All of a sudden, they're... The army's horses are tired because they're not as, their stamina is not. Some, the, the, the variables have changed somehow. And the Native Americans would do this all the time in battle. And the enemy that we face, the adversary, we may not be riding around on horses and we may not be facing him on a literal battlefield where there are literal weapons of warfare in our hands. But the enemy is just as cunning, and he is vicious, and he is subtle, and he is strategic. And let me give you an example. He hardly ever works in singularities. Here's what I mean. He almost always presents things in pairs. Okay? He almost always presents things in pairs. And here's what I mean by that. If he can get a person with the easy thing that he presents... Let's remember, we're working in pairs. If he can get a person with the easy thing, fine. He, he wins. He, he gets a notch in his belt. But let's say that the person he's, he's presenting this to knows better than to do this one thing over here. What the person sometimes doesn't recognize if they're not acquainted with the schemes of the devil is that the devil has actually prepared a second option. And he will use how averse you are to this one to drive you into the arms of the other one. Pride takes a lot of forms. There's the haughty kind of pride, right? There's the haughty kind of pride that we usually associate when we say the word pride, that you think you're better than everybody else and you're too good for this and you're too good for that and you, you know, you're just, you, no one can stand that kind of a person because it's so obvious that they're full of pride. There's other kinds of pride. There's the kind of pride where the person has convinced themselves that they are worthless and that they can't engage because they have nothing to offer. It's just a different manifestation of the same type of thing. What if the young man, let me give you an example. What if the young man, when Jesus was teaching the multitudes 
and the young man who had five loaves and two fish had said, the disciples are going through the crowd. They're asking if anyone has any food. And he says, I'm not even going to bother. I don't have anything to offer. This isn't going to make a difference. He would have been wrong, wouldn't he be? He also would have been wrong if he had said, you know what? I got this covered, boys. Jesus, just take a walk for a little while. I'm going to feed everybody with these five loaves and two fish. He wouldn't have been able to pull that off. There was a miraculous moment that needed to happen. And that would have been pride too. And so the enemy rarely works in singularities. He almost always presents things as a pair. And I'm only bringing that up to tell you that he is subtle. And that he is vicious. And that he is ruthless. And that he doesn't play fair. And that he'll, he'll, he'll set things up to where you think you are doing a hyper-strong response to this one thing. Knowing enough about us and our frame that it's going to drive us a million miles this direction into some other kind of sin if we're not careful. And it's not that we don't have the tools and the weapons to defeat him. We're going to talk about that next week, about how to resist the devil. We've got everything we need in Christ to resist him. And so I'm not saying this to confuse or to sow fear, but I'm saying this to simply paint a picture and to watch a little bit of tape together tonight and to do a little bit of opposition research. He is real. He is subtle. He is working. He is smart. He is ruthless. He is vicious. And he is on the prowl. He's a tempter and he's a tester. I, I told a story on Sunday morning. And it was about when David had, uh, he took a census, when he wasn't supposed to take a census. And there was a plague that swept over the land. And that's the really summarized version, but you can read about it in 2 Samuel. And there was a question that came up this week, and it was a good question. Someone texted me, and they asked me a question, and it was about what I'm fixing to talk about. And it was such a good question that I wanted to honor it by addressing it right now. In 2 Samuel chapter, and you can look at it with me if you want. 2 Samuel chapter 24 says that the Lord incited David to take this census. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, if you know about the way the Old Testament works, sometimes the Chronicles, 1 St. Chronicles, will retell and give us another record of the same events, and that's what happens here. The events that take place in 2 Samuel 24 are re-recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And in 1 Chronicles 21, it says that Satan incited David. And it uses the same exact verb. It uses the same verb. One says that the Lord incited it, and the other one says that Satan incited it. Is there a contradiction? Did someone get it wrong? No. And let's look at it together. Satan is a tempter. He is a tempter. And sometimes what God merely permits to happen is spoken of in the Bible as God actually doing it. Sometimes God simply permits it to happen. Let me give you two examples. In Exodus, in Exodus, time and time again, we've been teaching through Exodus for a while on some Wednesday nights. And so we've talked about Pharaoh and we've talked about Moses coming in and saying, let my people go. In Exodus, multiple times, I, I could go through and count, and maybe someone could do the counting for us and, and, and come back to us with a number, but multiple times, 
Moses approaches Pharaoh and says, listen, you got to let the people go or there's going to be frogs. You got to let the people go or there's going to be lice. You got to let the people go. You got to let the people go. And time and time again, Pharaoh rejects that. And it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, is God in the business of hardening people's hearts so that they can, making their decisions for them? Does anybody? I, I don't think any of us believe that God makes people's decisions for them, that God forces anyone to do anything. And so what Scripture is saying, it's not saying that God reached down and that Pharaoh had no choice in the matter because God had already predetermined that he was going to be lost and that he was going to make the wrong decision and that he was going to be bound for hell and that his heart. And so God just reached down and decided, you know what, you don't even get a chance. I'm going to harden your heart. Instead, what Scripture is saying is that God permitted Pharaoh to be presented with opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to do the right thing and to let the people go and to yield to the voice of God and the plan of God. And repeatedly, over and over and over and over again, Pharaoh rejected that. And so by God's indirect means, he is hardening the heart of Pharaoh. You understand? Can we, we, make, we make a distinction there? Let's look at another example. Are there any questions? Brother Anderson. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's a good question. I think that's the, at the heart of, of what we're talking about. This, it, that's a great question. Is God didn't reach down and, and harden Pharaoh. God presented him with opportunities. And Pharaoh, by virtue of his decisions, when presented with them, his heart was hardened. And so the, scripture, the scripture's way of relaying that to us is to say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart because it was God who was constantly giving Pharaoh a chance. It happens to you and me. And I, I don't want to frighten anybody. It's not my intention. But even today, if we sit and we listen to message after message after message after message after message, and God sends a preacher, and God sends a teacher, and God sends someone to you that's got a word, and God sends somebody to you that's got an encouragement, and God's got a word of direction for you, and, 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 and repeatedly over and over and over, and we come to the altar, maybe we even come to the altar. And, 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 we make a, and we make a display of faith, but then we leave the building and nothing changes, and we leave the building and nothing changes, and we leave the building and we don't take practical action on it. And we do that repeatedly. What do you think that does to the inside of us? It's not good. Is God the one actively doing it? No. But by virtue of God extending himself to us as an opportunity, through a message, through a word, over and over and over and over again. You might say that God is hardening the heart of somebody. He's giving opportunity. That's the kind of God that he is. Why do you think there were 10 plagues and not just one? Does it ever, has it ever struck you, why in the world did Moses and Aaron go back 10 times? 10 times? Are you joking? That seems excessive. 
God's hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Let's look at another example. The book of Job. The book of Job. Very interesting first couple chapters. The adversary makes an appearance there. He's called the adversary, the Satan. Most English Bibles will tell you it's just Satan, and that's fine because he is the, the top dog as far as adversaries go. So we can use the capital S, Satan. Satan went into the presence of God in Job chapter 1. He went into the presence of God twice, actually. Once in chapter 1 and once in chapter 2. Satan goes into the presence of God the first time. And he charged that a righteous man named Job only served God because of the blessings that God had given him. And God permitted Satan. You can read it. I'm summarizing. God permitted Satan to afflict Job with suffering. And he told Satan this in verse 12. Job chapter 1, behold, all that he has is in your power, only don't lay a hand on his person. Don't touch his person. And so Satan used both humans and nature to destroy Job's wealth and all of his children. And then Satan returned to the presence of the Lord. Let's just pick up in chapter 2, verse 6, and let's read about the second conversation that uh, Satan and God have. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him. There's that word, incited. You incited me against him. So we know that it was actually Satan that went and afflicted Job, but here God is saying, You incited me. So God has a hand in what's going on, but Satan is the agent, the adversarial one, who has been actually active. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Sometimes what God permits the scripture says it in a way to where it's, it presents it in a way as God doing it. When you look, when you peel the layer back, it's actually God permitting it to happen. It's not God actively reaching down and doing it himself. And that's where Satan comes in. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians. Let's not just get in the Old Testament. Let's go to the New Testament. Let's look at the New Testament because this stuff's still relevant today. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Is this Okay. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here's what Paul wrote. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. He's talking about the Antichrist. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, now it just got done saying all of this stuff is because Satan, Satan is pushing this agenda. Satan is pushing this agenda. The adversary is pushing this agenda. But then the next verse, verse 11, says, For this reason God will send them a strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, and they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. These that are being talked about in this passage, they have it in their heart to reject truth, and to embrace the lie. And God provides the opening 
for what is in their heart to manifest. And he does it because he does it through this agenda that Satan is pushing. Let me just say it like this. Let me just summarize this whole thing for a second and say, the devil is God's devil. The devil is not sovereign. The devil is not autonomous. The devil is not independent. He does not do his own thing. The devil, and this is hard to wrap our minds around because I should have said this at the beginning. <laughs> There's a lot of baggage that we have about the devil. There's a lot of cartoons that we've seen. I've watched the Looney Tunes, and so have you. And there's a lot of caricatures, and there's a lot of misconceptions, and there's a lot of pictures of him with a pitchfork and a mustache and horns, and I don't know what he looks like, but there's a lot of pop culture that's built, that's baked into what we have come to believe about the adversary. But at the end of the day, if we're looking at the scriptural testimony of what the Word of God says about this adversary, is that he is still doing things that are going to accomplish the will of God. Whether he wants to or not, whether he thinks he is withstanding against God, whether he thinks he's accomplishing anything by opposing God, he is still doing things that are going to further the will and the kingdom of God. I know that's difficult. I, I know sometimes we want to elevate Satan to a co-equal with God. And we want to look at the spiritual realm as this battle of equals against one another. And it's the kingdom of Satan versus the kingdom of God. And they're lodged in this grapple with each other. And, and we don't, and boy, I hope we've got to, you know, we've got to do this, that, and the other so that we can get the scale tipped back in this direction so that the kingdom of God's going to come through. That's not at all the picture that Scripture paints. Satan is not co-equal with God. Satan is not his equal. Satan is not sovereign. Satan cannot know your thoughts like God can. Satan doesn't have the same powers. That, sometimes we think that there's two sides and that all the powers that this one side has, the other side has matching powers and that they're just going at it. And it's not that way. Scripture does not paint that kind of a picture about our adversary. Scripture nowhere tells us that Satan has the ability to read your mind. He can't do it. He doesn't have access to your thought life unless you give it to him. Unless you open up a window and you let him in. Now let me tell you what he can do. There's a lot of things that your actions can tell him. What your habits and your routines tell him. He knows what your finances tell him about your values. He knows what your time management says about your priorities. You better believe he's doing the opposition research too. He knows what your interactions with others say about the fruit of the Spirit being in your life. He knows by your prayer life and your time that you spend in the Word, whether you're a disciple of Jesus Christ 
excuse me for being harsh, whether you're an atheist who attends church. He knows. He can't read your mind. But he does his homework. And he knows a lot about your nature. He knows a lot about human beings. He knows a lot about what drives us and what motivates us. He can pick up on the habits and the routines of your life. He knows what you value. He knows what you spend your time doing. And he knows what causes you to look twice. Let me put your soul at ease tonight. There is no demonic presence or force that can know your thoughts in the way that God can. There is a place, and the scripture calls it the secret place, that Satan has no access to. And if you will cultivate that secret place with God, that inner life with him, it is a place that no weapon of hell can touch. How important is your prayer life? How important is your time spent in the word of God and how it shapes and molds your, your thoughts and how you decide things and what you place the most value on. I can't exaggerate to you how important it is because it is the refuge that God has given you from the one who is your adversary. Why do you think Satan always has to present things in the form of a question? It's because he doesn't know what your response is going to be until you do it. He is not sovereign. He is not all-knowing. And another thing you need to know about him is that he is defeated. He is defeated. The jurisdictional authority of the adversary has been nullified by the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. He may have run the show down on earth during the Old Testament. You don't see much about Satan in the Old Testament. You don't see much demonic stuff coming to the surface in the Old Testament. It really wasn't challenged very much in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, you see this eruption of demonic activity and, and, and things that are happening and the adversary is making an appearance like he never has before. And all of a sudden, I'll just say it like it is, the doctrine of the adversary, the doctrine of Satan really starts getting developed in the New Testament because now finally he's starting to have to show his face because there's a challenge that's there. And the challenge had a name and his name was Jesus Christ. The powers of darkness understand that they don't have any jurisdictional authority here anymore. That's why every time that Jesus would encounter a demon, look in uh, Mark chapter 5, Matthew chapter 8, Jesus comes into contact with demon-possessed people, and the demons speak first. And they say, Jesus, they don't even say his name. They're just like, hey, hey, we know who you are. Have you come to torment us before our time? Have, don't, don't, please be nice to us. Please take it easy on us. They're saying, uh, you know, I'm summarizing, I'm paraphrasing, but they're, they're, they're in a position, they know, they know that their jurisdiction is being challenged and that once he goes down to the grave and rises again and ascends into heaven, 
that all of the right that they have had on the earth to run the show and to go unchecked and unchallenged is about to unravel. And so they're trying to vie for good terms. They're suing for good terms is what they're doing, just like the way they would do on the battlefield. They're coming to Jesus ahead of time. They're waving the white flag. They're saying, you have spiritual authority. We know that you're superior to us. And so we're going to come to you, and we're going to try to get good terms until the day comes when we don't have any time left. The enemy knows that he is defeated. We understand in the book of Revelation that when it talks about the end of the age, and when it talks about when things during this dispensation start to wrap up, that Satan is going to ramp up his activity like he never has before. That's why it uses words like tribulation. That's why there's such a, a, an amount of activity that's packed in to those chapters of Revelation because the enemy is on the final moments of his ability to act and to withstand God. He's running out of time to be the adversary. And that's all he can be. He can only be the adversary. He's committed iniquity. He has no other options. He can't be a worshiper. He can't be holy. He can only be the adversary. And the scripture says that when Jesus returns, he's going to finally, once and for all, set up his kingdom on the earth. And that every enemy is going to be defeated, including death. And the curse that has started to be broken already is going to be shattered into a million pieces. And there's not going to be any more tears, and there's not going to be any more disease, and there's not going to be any more brokenness, and there's not going to be any more war, and there's not going to be any more famine, and there's not going to be any more natural disasters, and there's not going to be any of that kind of thing because the adversary and the curse of the garden is going to be completely removed on that day. And Satan understands this. The reality is this, that everything that I've just talked about in the last few moments makes the Great Commission even more important because the plan of God is this. He is reclaiming the nations. Every tribe, every tongue, every family, every nation. He is the project that God has set up on the earth in the man Christ Jesus, is to reclaim dominion over the nations. That's why the scripture, when Jesus is ascending, the last commandment that he gives to his disciples is to go and make disciples of all the nations. I'm going to say it. The scriptures say that these signs shall follow them that believe. That there's going to be devils that are cast out, demons that are cast out. I believe that with every fiber of my being. I believe we should see it. I believe that we should probably see more of it happening than we see because demonic activity is rampant and there's people that struggle with it. And I believe in it wholeheartedly. But that is not the primary means by which God is, how God is going to win this war. We're talking about spiritual warfare. That's not the number one way that God's going to do it. The number one way that Jesus said he's going to do it is by the church making disciples. Wrap our mind around that for just a minute. Let's, let's pause and park right here for a minute. There's going to be signs and there's going to be wonders and there's going to be miracles that follow them that believe. But more than that, in black and white, Jesus has told the church that the war 
against Satan and his kingdom is a war of attrition. We're going to outlast him. We're going to outmultiply him. I wish somebody believed me right now. We're going to outmultiply him. We're going to outlast him. His jurisdiction is over. His time is over. And Jesus has given us everything we need to accomplish the mission that he sent us out on. He's saying, go and teach them. You've heard me say it before. Teaching is the ultimate form of spiritual warfare because it speaks to what goes on in the mind. When you convert somebody's thinking and you change their mind, that's why Paul, when he writes to the church, he says, we cast down imaginations and everything that exalts itself against God. We persuade men, he says. That's how we make disciples. We win them. We convince them, and some of what we do is convincing them through teaching, and some of what we do is convincing them through the miracles and the signs and the wonders that are going to follow those that believe. But this war is a war of attrition, and we are going to outnumber Satan because Scripture says that one day, one day, and the day's not that far off, that the gospel is going to be preached to every nation. And then the end will come. Then the end will come. I believe with everything inside of me that we have an adversary who is prowling and that we have to contend with. And we need to be wise. But I also believe that the words of Jesus were just as true today as they were when he originally said them, when he said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's what I mean when I say this, this is a war of attrition. Hell is swallowing people up, left and right. But the gates of hell, death, will not win and will not be able to withstand the church. The church is going to win. The church has every thing that it needs to stand in the day of adversity. Everything about what Jesus came to do was to break through the strongholds that the adversary was exerting on the whole earth. And he broke through whenever he lived a perfect and sinless life. And he died at Calvary and he was raised again on the third day and he ascended into heaven there was a breakthrough that happened where there had been no serious challenge to the adversary for all those centuries and all those millennia. Finally, there was one who could be our champion. Sister Kelly, if you would come. Jesus didn't just challenge Satan, but he fractured and he started to permanently break the authority of Satan in the earth. And in Christ, we have everything we need to fight off the devil's assaults because the adversary does not have home field advantage anymore. Make no mistake that there will be trouble and there will be pain and there will be attacks and you will feel resistance and sometimes there will just be life that happens. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus, he says as much. To this generation, 
the generation that's sitting right here in this room. He says, they're going to deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and they'll hate one another. And there'll be many false prophets that are going to rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Would you stand with me this evening? Thank you for sticking with me for a little while and for hearing out what the Lord has been putting on my heart this week. I know your time is so valuable and I don't want to I don't want to belabor anything, but I want to be sensitive to what the Lord wants to do here on this Wednesday night. Here's my call to prayer tonight that I wish we would do as just part of our midweek commitment to one another to stay in alignment with Jesus. I want to drive you into the heart of God right now, into your discipleship with Jesus Christ. I haven't meant to confuse. I haven't meant to sow any doubt. I haven't meant to, to sow fear or, or, or to make you nervous about this adversary. But I've tried to paint a picture of a God who is victorious and he won the victory for you, and you can be victorious. You can be victorious. Lift up our hands right now all over this room, if you would, with me, and I'm going to do the same. The scripture couldn't be more clear. We can't just be for God. We need to be with God. These altars are open right now. I would that you would gather around the front right now all over this room and recognize the day that we're living in. This is about to wrap up and the adversary is doing things and taking approaches that he's never taken before. And saints of God, we cannot just be for God. We must be with God. We must be with God because there's tribulations and there's wars and there's rumors of wars and there's famines. And the scriptures say that we're going to be hated by many and there's going to be people turning against one another and there's going to be lawlessness and there's going to be false doctrine that's rampant that we have to guard against and there's going to be things that we have to watch out for and there's going to be those that their love grows cold. And if we are not actively with God, we're going to find ourselves in that category that we feel ourselves growing colder and colder. But I'm here to tell you tonight that there's a God who is extending toward you and he is reaching for you and he loves you and he wants you to make it and you don't have to suffer attack after attack after attack of the adversary. You don't have to live under the thumb of one who would enslave you and tell you that you're no good and tell you that you can't make it because there's a God and he went to Calvary and he died and rose again and won the ultimate victory and you can walk in that victory right now. He is extending that victory to you. He's extending it to your situation right now. He's reaching for your health. He's reaching for your mind. He's reaching for your relationships. He can put it back together. He can encourage you. He can do what you haven't been able to do on your own. You can be successful even though there's chaos in the world, even though there's things going on in the world around us that we may not have an answer for. You can make it. You can be blessed. You can be victorious. You can walk in favor. 
Come on, would you seek the Lord right now? It'd be all right if somebody would hit their knees at these altars and say, God, I'm with you. I'm a disciple. I'm fully committed. I'm devoted. I'm going to make my prayer life what it's never been. I'm going to get into the Word of God like I've never gotten into it. I'm going to get stronger than I've ever been. I'm going to be able to encourage somebody because I'm going to develop an overflow in my life that says I'm committed to this. I'm going to endure to the end. The enemy's not going to wear me out. He's not going to outlast me. He's not going to outmultiply me. I'm going to get in such a condition that I'm reaching for somebody else. I'm going to pull somebody else into this truth. He's brought me out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's a light that I'm living in right now. Come on, it might be right now that you need to step out from where you're at because you just need a warm-up. Maybe you recognize you've gotten a little lukewarm. You've gotten a little cold. Jesus talked about it. It shouldn't come as a surprise to you that sometimes you just need a warm-up. Sometimes you need a...